All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Uh, we are in a season of Lent, and if you grew up in the, in, whether it's Roman Catholic Church or Lutheran Church or some other, uh, actually, traditions that are a little bit more liturgical, how many of you grew up, or even some Protestant, other Protestant um, flavors of Christianity, celebrated rent, some, uh, rent? Rent. Lots of other flavors of Christianity celebrated Lent, and it's something that, that was a key part of their, just their rhythm of the year. Um, how many of you uh, grew up celebrating Lent every single year? Okay, awesome. How many of you, uh, this year you already have taken something, okay, this is what I'm putting to the side for Lent? Okay. As Protestants, we're not, we're not as super huge into Lent as, as other liturgical faith, aspects of Christianity for sure. Uh, my son, uh, Carson, is giving up social media for Lent. Uh, that was one of the things that within 360, Pastor Jason taught on it, and it was great. And Lent, if you look back to its origins, it's, it's something that came out of really, really early church, like way back in the, in the first onset of Christianity. And it wasn't 40 days. It started out just as a couple of days, like three days. And it was like three days of sacrifice, identifying with Jesus's, um, the time when he was in the wilderness before he kick-started his, his uh, ministry. He, he spent a time of fasting and prayer in the wilderness. And so before people got baptized, they would take three days or so and identify with his ministry before they identified with his death and his resurrection. So that's what happened. But then at the Council of Nicaea, back in 325, they're like, no, no, no. This was great for three days. But if we're identifying with Jesus' ministry kickoff, um, he spent 40 days in the wilderness where he was fasting. So let's make this 40 days. And then after that, people are like, this is awesome for people getting baptized and stuff. But this is, we should do this every single year. And let's let like the fasting period go right up to Easter, like right up to the resurrection where, where we're, we're going to break the fast of whatever it was we were doing without We'll let that drive us into deeper prayer and thinking about Jesus' sacrifice and identifying with his ministry. Then, boom, Easter is going to be this major celebration where we get to come back to the sweets or the bread or the coffee or whatever. If you're giving up coffee for Lent, you really need to do some serious soul searching because that's just sin. But one of the things that, that with regard to Lent, just like every other religious type of celebration, we could take this thing that could be a great vehicle to connect us with God and his mission and turn it into something that's about us. Um, Eugene Cho, a guy who, who practices Lent, he's a pastor and author, he put it this way. Well, let's go back. He said, I understand the significance of self-denial and, and feel it's something we should actually pursue more of, especially beyond the Lent season, like as a life commitment. But if we're not careful, we can easily just fall into religious practice for the sake of religious practice. If the goal is merely the giving up of something without taking up of something more significant, let me just say that one more time. If the goal is merely the giving up of something without the taking up of something more significant, the focus is just merely on the stuff which we give up, or really the focus is on the practice of giving up something rather than giving into Jesus. Or in other words, our solidarity with Jesus. In truth, it becomes about us. Again, Eugene uh, Cho goes on to talk about how, you know, God, God really doesn't care about whether you're giving up sweets or coffee. I mean, that's not his end goal for you. <laughs> I want to have people who've given up sweets for 40 days every year. Boom! Now, there's a bigger goal there, and, and the bigger goal is the work that God wants to do. Um, Cho, actually, in that article, um, identifies that in Isaiah 58. It talks about fasting, and, and the, the fasting that God likes is the kind of fasting that I'm doing without something to drive me into deeper thought of what God wants me to do as far as mission. 
And then Isaiah gives examples, like, like if you're a boss, lightening the load of the people that work for you. If you see people hungry, feeding them. If you see people that are wrongfully imprisoned, actually doing something about it. And so like that's the kind of fasting that God's into, that he's all about, is this fasting that drives us deeper into mission. And so we, we were th- thinking that in the, the days leading up to Easter this year, in a season where lots of people, either in our church or in our culture, are celebrating Lent, Let's not do it in an anti-Isaiah 58 way. Let's actually say, God doesn't simply want me to do without something. He wants all of me. So instead of just something to give up for Lent, let's just completely give up for Lent. And so we're calling this series, I'm Giving Up for Lent. And we're just focusing in on a passage that Paul, is within the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 4 and 5 of of the book of Ephesians is some of the most practical, pragmatic stuff for a Christian's life. He starts off with this idea in chapter 4 of saying, you know what, God has given us grace. And it's not, not only, he's already talked about the saving grace he's given us, but he's got this kind of grace that's this equipping, enabling grace, charis. It's, it's, It's like God gives you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. And that's what charis is. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you could turn in them to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to read through the beginning aspect of this, then we're going to be ping-ponging around chapter 4 and 5 as we see what he's discussing with this morning's subject matter. He starts off in chapter 4, beginning verse 1, by saying this, As a prisoner of, for the Lord, not a prisoner of the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is only there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. And then he says this, because basically what he just says is, okay, so you're giving, you're t- basically what he said in other areas, you're taking off the old you, the default you, and you're stepping into the, the Christ-looking you, the, the real you, the ultimate you. And if that seems like Everest, he says this in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He goes into, after that, talking about how God's given, like, church leaders the ability to equip the saints with this charis, this equipping grace that God has. But the, the, the purpose of that is for everyone within the church body to also recognize that the Holy Spirit is equipping you to pull off the task of giving yourself up and over to Christ and to step into that. In, in your notes, I put it this way. Um, a Christian is putting off the old self and putting on Christ. In effect, they're giving up their agenda, their worldview, their MO, style, vibe, conflict management style, etc. for the one that looks and sounds like Jesus. A life that looks like Jesus is the most you you can be. It's the best version of yourself you could ever hope to operate within, and it's the key part of life that every single human being is longing for. And so throughout this series, I'm giving up for Lent, we're going to talk through some of the key things Paul surfaces in this passage about what does that look like of a life completely surrendered over to Christ. And we're going to start off with something that they really struggled with in the first century, but is far less practical today. And that's this. In the first century, people really struggled with their mouth and how they talked. Thank God we're over that because we're now in a much better place. How many of you this past week have said something that you regret? Okay. How many of you this past week, someone told you something or said something in a certain way that was regrettable? You wish they hadn't said it that way? Okay. And I apologize for all of those, okay? I didn't, I wasn't thinking. But the thing is about our mouth is this, that our mouth is a wonderful thing to give up for Lent. 
Our mouth is something that, that and actually, Brian, thank you so much for that article. Uh, Brian Jackson was the one that sent me that article by Eugene Cho. And I'm going to copy that to NBC's Facebook page. It was so incredibly helpful and right on point with that. But the reality is that if we're going to give something over or give up something for Lent, it has to be something else has to come in. And so what we're talking about today is the idea of giving up our mouth. Because there are key reasons that Paul identifies in this passage all over the place. Paul doesn't talk about it in one section of chapter 4 and 5. He keeps coming back to the mouth because it seems like this was a really big issue back then, and it still is. And here's four problems that we have, or four reasons that we should give up our mouth for Lent. And the first is this. I have an honesty problem, and so do you. Paul identifies the fact that we have this honesty problem by, say, by saying this is, what we, this is how we need to operate. He says in verse 25 of chapter 4, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He's like lifting lines from the prophet um, uh, Zephaniah when Zephaniah is talking um, in 8.16 about how we should be truthful people. As the people of God, we should be truthful. But he gets even more specific here. He's actually saying not only should we just be known in the world as being truthful, but he's, he actually subs in words and say we should be truthful to each other as Christians. That means that we're actually walking through life and open to the fact that someone can come up to you and say, listen, you're off the rails on this one. Listen, this is an area where you're falling short. And to be cool with that. And not only that, but that it's reciprocal. It's not just like a pastor coming down and saying, this is where you're off. But it's actually people within our small groups, people within in the ministry that we're serving in, people in the role that we're sitting in, that we actually as Christians have an opportunity to be honest with each other, to put off falsehood, to, to not be going through life and just putting on a smoke screen, but actually being honest in love, caringly communicating that. Why don't we do that? I'll tell you why we don't do that. We're insecure. Dishonesty comes from an insecurity deep inside of each one of us. Our problem with the truth stems from insecurity. We lie to rescue ourselves from a problem. Every lie that we have ever told comes from our desire to be our own Jesus. To cover over something we are insecure about, we attempt to be our own savior. You're in junior high or high school. There's this crazy, crazy strict teacher, really, really hard in math, Algebra 2. Yes, I'm speaking from personal experience. And you don't know how to do it. You're freaked out. But you've got a really good friend in class who's crazy smart. And so it becomes, first off, just asking for one or two answers to the question and how they did it, because you got no clue. And then after that, it starts to build from there on out. And over time, you start realizing that you went from one or two answers to half of the homework and then the entire thing, which was great until you get to the test. Or when Mrs. Yamada came and found you cheating before class and crumpled up your paper and her and, and the person that you were cheating off of. What was I doing? I don't know how to do this. And if I get a low grade in this class, I will have to undergo and incur the wrath of my parents. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be my own Jesus. I know what I could do to save myself. I just have to cheat. I mean, it's, it's dishonest, but it'll get me through this. There's a problem that I can be my own Messiah from. You, you, you're talking with someone um, that you're interacting with, and you're not being completely honest with them because you're, you're a people pleaser, and you're terrified that if you actually are honest with them or confront them about something, that they're not going to like you, or you're going to lose, or, or, or if when you're confronted about something, you totally lie to cover it up. When you're caught, and they, they actually finally caught you, he caught you, she caught you, they caught you, and all of a sudden you're caught, and all of a sudden you realize if this is discovered to be true, this will destroy me. I don't care if you're 12 or 52 or 72, you have that impulse to cover 
over your sin, which is ironic. This is the very thing that Jesus wants to do. He wants to atone, to cover over our sin. And instead, we say, thank you, Jesus, I appreciate that, but that's not going to help me now with my parents or my girlfriend or boyfriend or my spouse. Right now, I need to get out of this problem. And the only way that I could do to cover over this problem is to lie about it. And it works until it doesn't. We continue conditioning our brain that this is the key way to escape and save ourselves. And whenever we do that, we fall into the same trap. That's not who we are. The way that we, we, uh, we step out of that is actually we take those things that we're insecure about right to Jesus and say, Jesus, if I'm honest about this, this could destroy my relationship. I may lose my job. I may, get a tol- I may flunk this class. I may be kicked off the team. If I'm honest about this, this could destroy me, and that terrifies me. But my identity is not in the fact that I'm a husband, a, a wife, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a student. And my, my, my identity is in you. And that's forever, long after I stop doing one of the, whatever these are. And so give me the security that comes from my identity in you. I'm giving that over to you. And as you do that, all of a sudden the security comes back into the room and you have the ability to be honest. And for you, some of us, that's not possible. Let's be honest. That's why Paul says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He's given you everything you need to do everything he's called you to. We have an honesty problem, but we also have a hurt hoarding problem. Um, if you take a look at chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, and actually that, it should also be verse 31, you hear a very famous passage from what Paul's saying in that next verse. In your anger, do not sin. Okay, so we're talking not about the mouth now. This is kind of like what's leading to what the mouth says. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And he go, goes on, why? And do not give the devil a foothold. It's almost like if, you know, you're, you're going to get angry, but there's a difference between getting angry about something and allowing that to like sit and marinate in your brain, and your body, that can transition it from simply being a response to a situation that's wrong, I can't believe they did that, I can't believe that happened, that makes me angry, to actually saying, and I'm going to hold it for days, years, decades. Once that happens, all of a sudden it transitions from simply a response to a life choice and a lifestyle. And when that takes place, all of a sudden we start to get poisoned. And we see that in verse 31. When we hold on to that, we make this a multi-day anger thing that we're choosing to hold on to and not deal with. This is what happens, and this is what Paul was responding to in verse 31. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Bitterness, rage, all those kinds of verbal abuse, all that stems from an inappropriate handling of anger. Again, rightful response in the moment. I'm angry about this. That should not have happened. The choice to hold on to it leads to that word bitterness. And that word in Greek is pikria. And pikria doesn't just mean the opposite of sweet. It means, and, it, and it's more than just bitter. But, but, we, but let's just go with that. We've known people who um, have gone through, gone through life, and maybe you've known your grandparent, um, or maybe if you have a parent that's older, and they're just, they're just like the sweetest people on planet Earth, like amazing. You're like, man, this person's awesome. We've also known people that are the opposite of that. They're 85 years old, and they are just like, like this is the resting face. You're just like, Clint Eastwood, come on, man, smile. You know, that, that type of like just, uh, and, and you know that that's been conditioned. They didn't look like that at five. 
That was a lifetime of holding on to picria. And, and picria, it's actually also something, a word that's used within poison. When we actually choose to hold on to the anger and not process it, not deal with it, between one day and the next, we are choosing a personal trainer for our life. Like, okay, I, I, this was great for me today. I responded angry. I'm going to choose to pick up where I left off tomorrow and hold on to the same degree of poison, and I'm going to let that become a lifestyle. And the interesting thing of what, about what happens is this, is that we start fulfilling what has happened throughout our whole life. Every one of us as little kids, we got one of these. And we become, collect, we call it collecting because it's, it's um, not hoarding yet. But how many of you collect something? You're, you're, you collect baseball cards, comic books, movies, rocks, stamp, stamps? No. Okay, so we, some of us are, are collectors, right? Um, but every single one of us are a collector in this way. We go through life and, and all of a sudden at the beginning of life, um, we start collecting something that now, whether you're in junior high or, or, or you're in your 60s, we look back and realize, oh man, I've actually picked up and collected a whole lot of past pain. Past pain is just simply stuff from childhood, things that parents did. And I mean, everyone's got this. And so it's like, it's not super awkward and it's not crazy heavy most, and you can function. You go through life and you're walking, you go through school and you've got this and it's kind of get, it does get a little bit heavier at different points, but it's manageable. It's invisible to everyone else, but you're walking through life. And as you're going through life and, and dealing with this, you start to pick up other things. I mean, it's one thing if it was just in the past, but people have a way of frustrating you all throughout life. And all of a sudden, some of us feel incredibly devalued. How many of here in here have felt devalued recently. Oh man, you guys are so healthy. I just love you. Um, I, everyone at some point has felt devalued. My sister Joy, she tweeted on International Women's Day that she looks forward to a day where she can go into Home Depot and not be disrespected or looked down upon simply because she's a female. To which I responded, Joy, every time they've done that to you, that's been wrong. Every time they devalued you because you're a female, that's wrong. However, every time I've gone into Home Depot and they've looked down on me as an ignorant person, they were right. <laughs> Some of us have been devalued. Things have said to us, even things that were accurate, but they sting because of the way that they were said. And so what we do is we don't really know how to deal with this, and so we just kind of put it in the bag. It's, it's there, and again, it's not... It's not super cumbersome. I can get over it. You know what? I'm just going to let it slide off my back. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to go into the next day. That's just the way that boss is. That's just the way that person is. That's just the way the person that I ended up marrying is. Whatever. But you go through life, and all of a sudden, you start realizing it just continues on. That you start are picking up like disrespect from people. And that's hard because that starts to bring up the, the devaluing and the past pain. And it's almost like it, it brings color and light to it. And then all of a sudden, someone that we really cared about and close with betrayed us. They did something that just absolutely crossed a line. And then that gets put in there. And, and over time, again, it just keeps on adding up. And then all of a sudden, we have to deal with this. Now, I, I grew up knowing, again, as I've already told you, lies get you out of problem. And I understand it until it's done to me. Then I have zero tolerance for it. I hate lies. And I, with my kids, I've told them that. I, 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 my guys, this is my dad told me. He said, you know, listen, if, you, if you've done something wrong, you are going to have a consequence for wrong. If you, you, know, you punch your brother in the face, you, you, you put a hole in the wall, you light the house on fire, wrong, there's going to be consequence. Consequences. There's going to be consequences to the wrong. However, if you lie about it, oh, no, it's gotten bigger. Bigger consequences. Again, you do something bad, consequences. It'll be a punishment. You lie about it, 
oh, infinitely more bad for you every single time, I promise. And so I've told them that, and they still, it still is something that I've seen in my kids and other people that I know that it's still a way that people, it's a great way to get out of problems. But I carry that, and when you're carrying that and you're going through life, all of a sudden it just gets start to, it's, it's like you're backpacking. Like the backpack doesn't seem nearly as heavy as when you're like all of a sudden now 15 miles in, and the thing that was initially manageable just gets less and less manageable. And you just can't wait just to put it down. And you just need some escape. You know, and so some people are like, you know, there's just too much of this in here. And so I just need to, I need to just give me something to drink or give me something to eat or give me something to take so I can get out of this. Because this is, I can't handle this, but I also don't know what to do with it. I don't know if I can let it go. And I don't even know who to talk to about letting it go. And everyone's got their issues. And who am I to say that I, my issues are significant? And so I go through life and I'm like, it's getting heavier and heavier. And so I go to school and I just put on a fine face. Or I go to work and I'm like, I'm smiling with everyone there and I'm faking it to make it there. And I go to church, same thing. Everything's good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Great. What, does it look like I'm not fine? I'm fine. And you keep going on until you get home. When you get home, you do not have the energy to fake it, to make it. At home, all of a sudden, the pain of this from your whole life leading up to this point has gotten so cumbersome and heavy that you are on a thin line of explosion every second of the day because of this issue. And especially when you've tried to start being a better person or you're, I'm gonna be a better person, I'm gonna be making better decisions and you're moving in that direction and then somebody in your house calls you out or something that you've legitimately done, but you can't believe after all that you have put up with, they have the audacity to do this and say that about you, and all of a sudden, something takes place, this trigger in your brain, where all of a sudden, your words start to emerge, and you just want to take all the pain from your past and your words and just give, let them have it, and not just let them have it, go, do you understand what I'm dealing with right now? Do you understand what's going on in my life? Well, I feel better, actually. And then you realize something. Everyone around you, your kids, your family members, have now received something for their bag that they can now pass on to their own families down the road. Why does Paul say... Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get rid of all the picria, the bitterness, the poison. Why? Why? Paul is not calling for us to resolve every issue by sundown. That's madness. He's calling the believer to simply bring our rage to Jesus so that we can engage people the next day without the baggage. When I was first married, I thought that the right thing to do is to resolve, that the Bible was saying in that passage, resolve every issue before you go to bed. Or literally, I, I take the Bible literally, before the sun goes down. So Julie and I would be having this big old argument, and I'm like, we got like 15 minutes of sunlight left. I know how I to fix this. I'm going to up the intensity. That's going to get us to the finish line faster. And every single time that I tried to resolve by the end of the day and, and, and force that into making that happen, it... You may be shocked by this. It made it worse every single time. And I remember thinking, man, how unbiblical is my wife? <laughs> this is like, why does she not want resolution now? Until you realize that Paul doesn't say resolve everything before the sun goes down. He's talking about 
managing and processing your anger before the sun goes down, and that's completely different. What that is doing is simply this. It's saying, by the end of each day, having a clearinghouse, God, this is tearing me apart. And I feel rightfully angry, rightfully enraged that this happened, that they did that, that they said that. And it's tearing me apart. The stuff from my past, every time it's coming out, it's tearing me apart. And yet, you look at me different because I have betrayed you, I have lied to you, I have disrespected you, and yet you still died for me. You love me. You saw me through that, and you covered over my sin at the sacrifice of yourself. So God, I'm asking that you help me with this Give you the rage, not saying that what happened was okay, not saying that what happened wasn't a big deal. It was. I'm just asking you to take the poison out so that tomorrow when I wake up, I will not simply have shoved it underneath the rug, but I'm able to come at dealing with these people that you love with more objectivity and calmness than someone who's still carrying around all the baggage of the poison from before. Does that make sense? God is calling us to do that. And if you're like, that's, I can't do that. You're right, you can't do that. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned to it. God has given you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. But not, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was just an honesty issue or, or just a hurt hoarding issue. But on top of that, we actually have a filtering problem as well. Take a look at verse 29 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 29 says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful to building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, so first off, when I, whenever I read that before, like growing up and stuff, unwholesome talk, I'm like, okay, he's talking about like, so don't cuss. I thought that was what that passage was saying. That's not what that passage is saying. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it, might bene- that it may benefit those who listen. What he's saying here is actually that the word for unwholesome gives us the picture. He's talking about building others up, words and ways that we can talk to build others up or tear them down. And the word for unwholesome is sapros, which is another word for rotten. It's way better than unwholesome because unwholesome is kind of a, it's ambiguous. Rotten is a better description of what it is that he's describing. Jesus actually uses sapros in, in two different parables. One parable, he's talking about like a fisherman who's bringing, like he's, he's dragged in this massive net of fish. And before you go to take your fish to the, the fish market, you realize that not only did you bring in a lot of great fish that are alive and ready to, to go to the market, but you also bring in sapros fish, rotten fish that are dead. And what you would not do is go to the market and say, Look at my fish. Do you like my fish? I don't know if they would talk like that in first century Israel, but look at my fish. Les poisons. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't say that with, with fish that they hadn't filtered out because the guy at the market would go, what are you doing? Like there's rotten fish in there. It's like rotten fish juice getting all over the other ones. Yes, but look at how many good fish there are. Yes, the rotten ones too, but look at the good ones. They want to do that. And he talks about fruit. And these are like a bowl of tangerines. And he talks about a, a, actually a fruit tree and how like a, a good tree doesn't produce rotten fruit. If you go to someone's house today for lunch and they're like, 
Would you like some tangerines? And, and they give you that? Run. You're in a messed up house. This is a serial killer because no one would do that. No one says, here's tangerines. And would say, I've got, because and, and if you said, you've got moldy tangerines in there. Yes, but look at the four or five ones that are really beautiful. Just choose one of those if you don't like them. And you're like, no, there's penicillin migrating into the good ones. I'm not going to eat that. Why? Sapros. It's rotten. And, when, and the same thing, Paul is talking about how we use our words. He said, you know, if someone ever confronts you, you shouldn't have said that. And your response is, what are you talking about? Most of the things I said was just fine. Great. But you used words in how you talked that were biting, that actually were jarring, that broke people down, didn't build them up. You're using rotten words, words that are tearing people apart. And so our, 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 the way that we step out of this, according to Paul, is instead I practice identifying the words that are sapros and then give them to Jesus. And, and I would just want to challenge you with this. Find out what word, here's today, with people that you live with, whether it's your parents, if they're in your house, or your husband or wife, if, if, you're, if you have a relationship with, a, with someone, a girlfriend or boyfriend or people at your work, people at your school that you interact with regularly, Ask them that today, what are words that I use that are sapros? What are, what are things that I say that, are, that bite, that, that, that tear down and they don't build up? I mean, I may, and, if, and if they tell you, like, well, you know what? When you say this, that, that actually is, is a biting word. Your right response is, what are you talking about? I didn't mean that when I said that. No, you don't do that. You're like, okay. Let me give you an example of this in my life. About a month ago or so, three to four weeks ago, I was in a deacon meeting, and I presented this idea, and it was something that we had worked on, and here's an idea, and there was a deacon at this meeting that listened to this idea that I had given brilliantly, might I add, and said, well, actually, you know, a great way to do that idea that you have is this idea. And I, as he was speaking, I'm like, this is a dumb idea. This is terrible. And I, you know, and I, and I didn't even, like, I let him, like, maybe put the beginning of a period at the end of that sentence before I said, that is a terrible idea. And everyone's like, Because usually I'm like, but in that moment, I came down hard on that. I, this is not a good idea. It's not going to go in, the, in a good direction. We need to cut it off before it gets any traction in this room. That was a terrible idea. Boom. And I, and I actually felt good about it. I went home. Drew, I drove home a little faster. You know, I don't know. And, and, I, and I, I, everything was great until I got a text message from Pastor Dave. And he's like, um, tonight, when you shut that deacon down pretty hard, I think that was pretty harsh. I think you crossed a line there. And I'm like, what? And I mean, I, I can't text that. So I'm just like, in my head, what? What, what are you talking about? I was right. That was the right response. I didn't want that to have any more traction. It was a terrible idea. And he said, well, I'm just letting you know it sounded harsh. And you're usually more diplomatic than that. Okay, well, whatever. But at least I'm right. I know I'm right. And I thought that until two weeks later. We're meeting with a consultant. And we're discuss discussing different things. And one of the areas that came up was this particular area we, that we were talking about at that deacon board. And the consultant said, I've got an idea for how you can pull that off. What if you did this? And the this that he said, the this that he had the audacity to say was the very thing that that deacon that I shut down said. And I'm just like going, what in the world? And, I'm, and it's really one of those things where I'm like, wait, are you really? Really? And he said, yeah, I think that actually would work great. So after I like removed the palm from my face, I realized 
how off I had been. And I went to our staff, and I just checked it with them and said, what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, you know, actually, I think, I think that idea is actually a good idea. So next time I saw the deacon, he was right out here in the lobby, and I went right up to him. And I said, listen, um, two things. First off, that idea, that terrible, terrible idea, we were talking with a consultant, and he actually, he thought it was brilliant. I talked with the staff, and they agree. And I was wrong, and I need to apologize to you for that. But secondly, I need to apologize to you for how, how harsh I was when I shut that down. And I just wanted to ask you for forgiveness. You know what he did? He laughed at me. But it felt so good. What would that look like in your context? I felt I was completely in the right. I wasn't responding the way I was because I thought I was wrong. I was doing what I thought out of motives, thinking that I was right. But the biting way that I did it did damage. What are the words that you use or the ways that you use them with the people in your world that are biting, that are sapros, that are breaking down, not building up? Filter. Ask people who you love what they are and then make the choice for 40 days to filter out. If at the end of 40 days, you're just like, you know what, that was the biggest waste of time. I really like breaking people down. We'll go right back to it. But for 40 days, try that out. See if Paul was right. And if you don't think you can, just remember, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We also have a profanity problem, which everyone here is like, no, I thought he wasn't going to say anything about that. And you're like, yay, you're going through four, like, boom, honesty. All right, we'll go. that's manageable. Uh, talking to people in a bitter way, nah, manageable. And you keep going, then all of a sudden you get to chapter five. And you're like, no, when he says this in verse four, nor should there be any obscenity, Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And so he lifts off like a myriad of things. And these are the only places in the New Testament these words and phrases are used. But, he, but he's talking about everything from profanity to like, like making racial jokes about people or, 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 or sexual jokes about people that are hilarious, but you, that are off. And the interesting thing is that Paul is not saying that they're as damaging as the cutting words that he talked about before, the rotten sapros words. He's not saying that you're going to drop a hand grenade of damage in a room of people by using profanity in the same way that you would be if you were cutting people down with your words. He's, not, he's actually making a different case altogether. What he's saying is this. Paul isn't making the case that naughty words are harmful, as harmful to those around you as cutting words. He is making the case that casually using our mouth to produce both profane words and profound worship produces a fake us. And all I got to say about that is this, is that, that as, a, as a people, um, profanity is all around us. You go to school, you, you go to your workplace, whatever. The, the years that I, I cussed the most, and I've told you this before, like my prime cussing years were third and fourth grade. Every book, every word in the book was like, choo, 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 and it was hilarious. And I thought I could keep that at school because my parents wouldn't be stoked about it. I thought I could keep that at school with my friends and just like brrr, rattle off everything every single day. It was almost like, let's go through the dictionary of cuss words every day, because it's so much fun. And boom, we did that. And, but then all of a sudden, it, it got out with my parents. And like, it, was, it was one of those things where um, I just remember that day as a profound day when my parents heard me because I fell off my bike. And I said, the whole list of everything that I had before, so professionally had practiced up on, came out of my mouth. And my dad's right there going, whoa. 
Now, my parents moved shortly thereafter from, from uh, La Crescenta to Torrance because I cussed and they wanted to get me out. No, not, not at all. Um, we moved, actually, next year. My dad's work moved and we, we moved. And um, it was weird because when we, I made that move, I told myself, this is exhausting trying to be two different people. Like trying to be like, I, I, I act a certain way and talk a certain way with my friends and people at school and I talk a certain way and I act a certain way with parents and family and people at church and stuff. And it just is exhausting. And so when I went into fifth grade, I had this profound realization, I just don't want to do that anymore because it's just, I hate trying to figure out what I need to say where and what I need to censor where, you know? It's just ridiculously fake and, and I just didn't want that anymore. Now every place that I worked in and every school I had in had tons of profanity all around me, but what, you want to know the first thing they knew about me or noticed about me? One of the first thing people, the more this time they spent with me, noticed was that I just didn't cuss which is a weird thing for the, to be a first thing that they would notice. But for whatever reason, in a sea of profanity, if someone's not cussing, it's like, it's like being at a, at a drinking party and having someone, you know, sipping Sprite. It's like, what's wrong with you? That, that's kind of the same perspective that people would have, that did have. And so for me, it was one of those amazing things of just simply saying, and I wasn't even thinking about this. I just wanted to be consistent. And I was tired of not being consistent. So I want to challenge you, if, if that's something that's, that's your world, where you're like, man, seriously. And, and for me, still, to this day, like, if I'm in traffic, those words are coming into my brain and sometimes coming out of my mouth. When I screw something up, those words are coming into my brain and sometimes they're coming out. But it's a radical difference. And, and I would also say that there's moments that strong language is the only appropriate description for something. Paul uses strong language that raised people's eyebrows in, in some, of his, some of his letters to churches. It's not that, it's the casually using our mouth to simply have interlaced into our daily vocabulary profanity and worship. That just produces a fake us. If you want out of that, like if you want for 40 days just to see what a, a different way of life is, don't do this. Uh, this might make you a whole lot of money having a cuss jar or a swear jar, but I'd say instead of having a swear jar, just do what, what Paul says. Paul says that the way that we do this is nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. It's, it's not who you are, but rather thanksgiving. So every time, like, okay, you're, you're in the car, and all of a sudden, you just, you just you drop something. It just comes out. Or you're in a situation where you're talking with someone, it just comes out. Don't make a big spectacle of it. Just quietly, silently in your own heart, spend a moment of thanksgiving. Dear God, I just want to thank you so much for the fact that, like, I hate going to school. But I want to thank you that I'm actually interacting with some people that are really, really cool and helpful in my life. Dear God, I want to thank you for my job. I don't like my job. I'm looking for a different job. You heard the words I used describing my boss. But I want to thank you for giving me an income that I can actually provide for my family. You do that every single time. You find yourself dripping into obscenity. And you're going to be one of the most joyful persons on planet Earth. And I think that you're going to start to see something take place in your actual language as well. And if you don't think you can, I just want to remind you, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. For 40 days, watch what happens if you give up yourself for Lent, specifically this week with your mouth. And you'll see what, he what he's talking about here when he wraps it all up by saying this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. For the road... Simply do this. Be kind. Be kind. Being kind is actually intentionally using words of affirmation for people around you. You may not be someone who likes to compliment people or say kind things to each other. For 40 days, practice being kind and watch what happens. 
Not only that, be compassionate. Compassion is going more beyond words and actually stepping into actions, intentionally serving the needs of somebody else. There are people in your world that you can actually make decisions about today to serve their needs and their agenda before yours. And finally, forgiving. Being forgiving. And being forgiving is intentionally releasing yourself and others from past poison that robs you and them of today's purpose. Folks, we do that, and we actually are stepping into the grace that Christ gave us to pull that off. And we start to see the person, the human that he's called us to be, and it's awesome. And you could do it with his grace. It's certainly within reach. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, I just pray a blessing, God, over the people in this room that they will be able to actually have, by the leadership of your Holy Spirit, the desire to let you do the work that you want to do through them. God, the, the work that starts in our mind and how we, we've processed our past anger, through the actual ways that we communicate with those around us. God, drive us into a kindness and a compassion and a forgiving spirit that may be foreign to us today but will not be foreign to us tomorrow. Help us take the steps into that and let us give you the glory and we'll give you the thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week.